0: then, Good morning, Life Church. Glad that you're with us. Um, as Brittany said, we're finishing our study in the Gospel of Mark today, so I hope you have a Bible with you. I'm going to be in Mark 15 and 16, chapter 15, starting at verse 40, and so I'd love it if you'd turn there um, and hang out there. Um, this is our 41st week in our more-than-year-long study of the Gospel of Mark. Obviously, we've taken some breaks along the way, um, but I'm delighted that we get to kind of tie some things up today um, and set our minds one final time, in this series at least, on the servant king, Jesus Christ. And I've been praying um, really for a few years about this series. i been praying for a few weeks about the opportunity to just put these final truths before us. And I pray that the Lord will reveal to all of us, to each of us, um, who he is, what he's done, and how we can respond to him today. Um, so Mark, fifteen. We're starting verse forty. Before we get there, I just really just a couple of things. Um, first of all, um, many of you are aware of the fact that Kristen and I were traveling last weekend. We were uh, summoned away sort of at the last minute um, for an extended family funeral, and so I just want to say thank you um, because we received just so many um, expressions of sympathy and sorrow, and uh, we knew many, many of you were praying for us. And so thanks for um, you know being uh, mindful of us as we were away. I also just want to thank Mark Etheridge, who stood up here for me last Sunday on relatively short notice. I'm really grateful for Mark and for the work that he's doing here in our church, especially in this season of transition on our staff. And so if you see Mark or no Mark, I would just be so grateful if you would express, express your gratitude to him uh, for the work that he's doing, not just last Sunday, but overall here as a part of our team in this season. That's one thing I wanted to mention. Here's the other thing that I need to mention, and um, I don't think this is too sticky a wicket, but I need to go here. So, in your Bible, you might see that the Gospel of Mark does not end in Mark chapter 16, verse 8. That's where we're ending today. Um, I'm convinced, as are the majority of New Testament scholars, uh, that when Mark wrote his Gospel, the last verse that he wrote was Mark 16, verse 8. Um, I'm convinced that uh, when scribes were initially copying the Gospel of Mark, they were kind of jarred by how abrupt the ending was at the end of Mark 16, verse 8. And so fairly early in the history of the church, sort of a longer ending of Mark was attached to Mark 16. And that's printed in your Bible, it's printed in mine, with a footnote that says, this doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. So what do we make of all of that? Because today, I'm going to preach the final message in our Mark series, and we're going to stop at Mark 16, verse 8. Why have we made that decision? Well, um, I think everything in Mark 16, 9 through 20 is, is surely true. I think it's possible that it was even written by Mark himself, or I think more likely one of Mark's friends or another early follower of Jesus. I think we can learn a lot from Mark 16, 9 through 20. I'm just convinced that we shouldn't accept it and receive it as the inspired and authoritative and infallible word of God, and so we're not going to preach it from this space right here. You can study it yourself. You can learn from it. Um, but again, we're just not going to hear it the same way that we hear God's voice speaking to us through Scripture week after week. And so we're going to stop in Mark 16, verse 8 today. I want to say too much more about that in this space. If you have further questions about this, I would be so glad to you know, sit with you and talk through whatever questions you might have. If you want to yell at me over this issue, and it occurs to me there, there might be a few of us who want to yell at me over this issue, that's great. I just want to get it over with all at once. And so after the service is done, we're just going to form a line right over here, and you can yell at me, and then we'll move on. Cool? In all seriousness, Mark fifteen forty to 16.8. This is the word of God for us today. Two weeks ago, uh, Matt Perez was here, and he showed us the climax of Mark's gospel, the crucifixion of the servant king. Jesus Christ, he was falsely accused, he was unjustly tried, he was mocked, he was spat upon, he was tortured, and then he was nailed to a Roman cross. It was the most humiliating and horrible form of punishment known to the world at the time. And while most who watched Jesus hang on the cross continued to mock him even as he bled to death and struggled to breathe and asphyxiated unto the point of death, even while most who watched him continued to mock Jesus. There was one man, Mark tells us, who looked on the crucifixion with a newfound sense of awe. The Roman centurion who was overseeing Jesus' crucifixion, he said this, you can read this in Mark 15, 39, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And a careful reader will know that that's actually the main idea of Mark's gospel, the theme of the gospel. Because way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark wrote the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And everything that Mark wrote after chapter 1, verse 1, he wrote to persuade us and anyone who would read his writing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that Jesus is the Son of God. And actually, wonderfully, in the Gospel of Mark, the first human being to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God is that Roman centurion beholding his crucifixion. Demons have recognized that Jesus is the Son of God in Mark's Gospel, but this centurion is the first man to to say aloud that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the climactic moment in Mark's story of Jesus. But it's not the end of Mark's story of Jesus. Mark makes that clear for Jesus. Death does not have the last word. The cross is not the conclusion of the story of Christ. The story of the Christ culminates not in death and defeat, but in an empty tomb. And that empty tomb changes everything for those who follow the servant king. Let's look at it together. I'll read just a couple verses at a time today. We'll pause and comment along the way, starting in Mark 15, verse 40. There were also women, looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And So we pick up after the crucifixion with women at the cross of Jesus, Mark tells us they're looking on from a distance. That's probably a comment about their spiritual state as well as their physical state that's been true throughout the Gospel of Mark. Statements like that. They indicate something about the heart of the people that are being described. But in their defense, these women are far nearer to the cross of Jesus at this moment than Peter and James and John and the other chosen disciples are. Right? They're far nearer to the cross of Jesus than Jesus' closest friends are. All of Jesus' friends have abandoned him at this moment But these women have not. What will the empty tomb change for Mary Magdalene? What will the empty tomb change for Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, for Salome? We should note here, the presence of women at the cross, it's significant, but it's really not nearly as significant as the presence of women in the narrative of Mark's gospel itself. Let me explain what I mean. There's a British scholar, his name is Richard Bauckham, and he has a landmark book on this topic. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And Bauckham says that the inclusion of women in the narrative stories in the Gospels, especially the narrative stories surrounding the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, these are strong indicators that these narrative stories are eyewitness accounts rather than like make-believe fables or a fictitious story. You see, Bauckham says, women had very little legal standing in ancient societies. They were marginalized and ignored. Women in the ancient world could serve as witnesses in a court of law. They lacked the legal standing to even testify in court. In other words, they were like slaves, second-class citizens, essentially. And so Bauckham says that in the ancient world, if anyone was writing a fictitious story about a resurrected God-man, and he wanted people to believe that fictitious story, he would never include women as the first witnesses to that resurrected God-man. Right? If Mark or the other gospel writers wanted to fabricate a tale, they wanted to make something up and, and dupe the rest of us into believing it, the thing that they would never do is have Mary Magdalene... And Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome, standing there, watching Jesus crucified, seeing where Jesus was buried, and then being the first to discover the empty tomb of Jesus. If you were Mark and you wanted to make something up and persuade the rest of us that it was true, you just wouldn't do that. What's the point? These things really happened. Mark is writing the story to persuade us that this is the truth. The next person that Mark mentions is a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Look at verse 42. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath... Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, Joseph of Arimathea has a problem Jesus, he was crucified on Friday, Good Friday, that's the day of preparation, Mark tells us. Preparation for what? Well, preparation for Sabbath. Jews actually began observing Sabbath at sundown on Friday, which means that the time is short after the death of Jesus. If Jesus died sometime in the afternoon of Good Friday, Joseph doesn't have much time. He wants to bury Jesus. But Jewish law prevents one from working, even burying a dead body on Sabbath. And so Joseph, is brought he has to hurry to Pilate and negotiate for the corpse of Jesus. The Gospels only tell us a few things about Joseph of Arimathea. Mark tells us that he's a member of the council, by that he means the Sanhedrin, These are the dudes who have been pulling the strings behind the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus from the beginning. These are the Jewish leaders, the ones who have conspired against and harassed Jesus his entire life. These are the ones who've wanted Jesus killed. And so Joseph of Arimathea, he has secretly, it appears, been for Jesus, even while all of his fellow religious and political leaders in the Sanhedrin were against Jesus. Luke tells us that Joseph was a good and righteous man. John says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Mark adds, he was looking for the kingdom of God. All that means that Joseph risks a great deal by going to Pilate. He's he's been following Jesus in secret, he sits on the ruling council, if anyone on that council finds out that he's a friend of Jesus of Nazareth, he risks losing his job, maybe even his life, by going back to Pilate, who's pretty irritated at this point by the Sanhedrin, he risks losing his standing and even his life. Yeah, Joseph of Arimathea does not want Jesus' body to hang on the cross over Sabbath. Now typically, when the Romans crucified somebody, they disposed of the body one of two ways. Often, they would take the body off the cross and throw it in the garbage dump behind the city of Jerusalem, it's called Gehenna. You might have heard that word before, because Jesus uses that garbage dump as a metaphor when he teaches about the doctrine of hell. The Romans thought that it was a fitting place, This public, unmarked grave, a fitting place for rebels and insurrectionists. They didn't want to dignify criminals with a proper burial. And so often after a man died on a cross, they would take him off the cross and throw him in Gehenna. If they didn't want to do that, the Romans would just leave the corpse on the cross and let it rot. Carrion, fowl, and other scavenger animals would come and start to pick at the body. The heat and humidity would start to bloat it. The sign to all who saw it was this is what happens to criminals. Don't get any ideas. The Romans really loved to leave bodies hanging on crosses. And that's what Joseph wants to avoid. He wants to see Jesus buried. I really do wonder why. Surely any hope that Joseph had about Jesus being a messianic king died when Jesus died on that cross. Why does Joseph of Arimathea stick his neck out for the corpse of Jesus of Nazareth? Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead, and so he summons the centurion. It's the same centurion who in 1539 said, surely this man is the son of God, and the centurion confirms that Jesus is dead. The way Mark is writing the story there, he's like certifying that Jesus really, truly died. It's like a coroner or a doctor pronouncing a man dead. Right? The centurion, he's a legal witness, Pilate is a legal authority, and both of those men in this story declare Jesus to be dead. Mark wants us to be certain, Jesus of Nazareth really died upon the cross. Pilate, for some reason, agrees to Joseph's request. He gives him the corpse. will not you notice, that's the word that's used? Right? Not the Greek word for body, the Greek word for corpse. This is a dead man. And Joseph takes the lifeless mass of flesh and organs and bones, and he lays them in his own tomb, and then he seals the entrance to that tomb with a stone. What will the empty tomb mean for Joseph of Arimathea? Finally, Mark pans back to the women. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They're not gonna to go to the wrong tomb on Resurrection Sunday. They saw where he was laid. 16 verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Another thing that that scholar Richard Bacham says about the the truthfulness of these accounts. He points out the fact that no one in the Gospels is expecting a resurrection, which is kind of remarkable because Jesus spent a good deal of his life telling people that he was going to die and then on the third day rise from the grave. He actually told people exactly what to expect, yet no one expected what Jesus said to be true. And so again, if you're writing a a fictitious story, if you're writing a fable that you want people to believe, and the hero in that fable keeps saying again and again and again, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back to life three days later, then some of the people who are closest to that hero in the story, they're going to listen to him, they're going to believe him, and they're going to show up expecting a resurrection on the third day. But Bochum says no one in these stories is doing that. And it's remarkable because Jesus really did say it again and again and again. Even in the Gospel of Mark, a central thing that Jesus has been saying throughout the story, he's been predicting many times that he would die, that he'd be buried, and that after three days he would rise. So just... As an example, this is Mark 8.31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. 9.31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days he will rise. Again, in 1033. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And we hear that, and we're thinking, surely one of these close followers of Jesus who heard him say those things over and over and over again, and then saw the first like 90% of that fulfilled in the life of Jesus... Right? These guys saw Jesus handed over to the chief priests. They saw Jesus flogged and spit upon and mocked and beaten. They saw Jesus crucified. Surely one of them is going to think, you know what, he kept talking about after three days, he was going to rise again. Surely one of these people is then going to go to the tomb of Jesus on the third day, expecting to find the risen Lord. And these women, they do go to the tomb on the third day, but they don't expect a resurrection. Right? The Mary's and Salome, are here, they're going to the tomb, but they're not expecting to talk to the risen Jesus. They're going to anoint him for burial. They couldn't do that on Good Friday because it was Sabbath, and if you anointed a body for burial on, Sabbath, or on, on Good Friday, on Friday, the day before Sabbath, then you would be ceremonially unclean on Sabbath. Day. They couldn't do it on the Sabbath. It's all for the same reason. And so here they are on Sunday, the first day of the week. They're walking to the tomb. And they're even having a conversation. Like, how are we going to move the stone away? Who are we going to find that's going to move this heavy stone, sealing the tomb of Jesus out of the way? Why are they talking like this? They don't expect to find a resurrected Jesus. They expect to anoint his cold, lifeless corpse again. This is evidence of the fact that these things really happened, Buckingham says. The women are walking to the tomb, verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Isn't that a fitting way for the Gospel of Mark to come to a conclusion? When you really think about the way Mark has told us this story about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, how many times in Mark's Gospel have we seen someone come face to face with the glory and power and divinity of Jesus and respond with fear? Jesus' disciples, most of them seasoned fishermen, are on a boat. A storm rises on the Sea of Galilee. They are afraid. Jesus wakes up in the back of the boat, speaks a word. The storm is immediately calmed. The disciples are even more afraid. The villagers who saw Jesus cast a legion of demons out of a man into a herd of pigs respond to Jesus' miraculous power by being afraid. The woman who was bleeding for 12 years touches the hem of Jesus' robe. She's immediately healed. When Jesus turns to look at her, she trembles in fear. When Jesus walks on water across the Sea of Galilee to his disciples in a boat, they respond with fear. When Jesus feeds 5,000 people from just a little piece of Lunchable, right? everyone responds with fear. Right? This is the normal response in Mark's Gospel, to come face-to-face with who Jesus is. And so here we see the women. The angel appears to them. He declares to them the best news that has ever been declared in the history of history. He says, verse 6, He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. How do they respond? Verse 8, They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized, him, seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What will the empty tomb mean for these women? What will the empty tomb change for Mary and Mary and Salome? Mark doesn't tell us. I think because he's inviting us to ask the question, what does the empty tomb change for me? What does the empty tomb change for us? He's inviting us to ask the question, what will we do now? Now, in my experience talking to Christians and pastoring people, a lot of us have a really good grasp of what it means to live on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? We understand the cross fairly well. That doesn't mean that we believe it fully always, but we understand that on the cross Jesus acted as our substitute, that he died in our place, that he paid the penalty for our sin. Like we have a, a pretty good grasp of the implications of the cross for us. But in my experience talking to Christians and pastoring people, we, we are far less certain about what it means to live on this side of the resurrection. Like We don't really have a full grasp of what it means to live on this side of the empty tomb of Jesus. What does the resurrection of Jesus change for us. Well, in truth, we can point to innumerable things. Today, with the time I have left, I'm going to point to three things. The resurrection of Jesus It's the foundation for all Christian belief. The resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for all Christian obedience. And the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation for all Christian hope. So belief, obedience, hope. I'm going to lay these things before us today. First, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of all Christian belief. It's in 1 Corinthians 15 that the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so Paul says without the resurrection of Jesus, the things that Christians believe in and trust in and even think, those things are futile. Right? They're worthless and empty and meaningless. Without the resurrection, Christians are pitiable and pitiful. But because of the resurrection, Paul's making this argument, because of the resurrection, the things that we believe in, trust in and think, they are reasonable. Right? If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then the things that we think and believe and trust in, they have meaning and significance. And that meaning and significance is grounded in the reality of the resurrection. What do I mean by that? Well, I think it is helpful for us to acknowledge the fact that the Bible invites us to believe a whole bunch of weird stuff. There are things in the Bible that are hard to accept. I struggle to accept them sometimes. The book of Samuel invites us to believe that Goliath was 10 feet tall. Right, in the Old Testament we read about a conversation between a man and his donkey. And then we get to Jesus, who's like healing people left and right and casting out demons and you know, feeding thousands and thousands of people with just a few loaves and a few fishes. Right, he he uh, opens the eyes of blind men. He opens the ears of deaf men. then who were mute, who hadn't spoken in years, erupt in song at Jesus' healing touch. And as we think about right, the stories that we read in the Bible, right, they're challenging for some of us to believe. I haven't seen anyone calm the storm simply by speaking to it. I haven't seen anyone having a legitimate conversation with their donkey because I haven't seen those things with my eyes. It is at times challenging for me to accept that those things genuinely and truly happened. When we doubt when we wrestle with the claims of the Bible, we must always bring those doubts back to the resurrection. In other words, in the moment of doubt, do your business with the empty tomb. Sort out Balaam and Jonah and anything else that you struggle to accept, sort those things out later, because the foundation of all Christian belief is the empty tomb. In other words, if Jesus is not raised from the tomb, then who really cares if you believe any of that other stuff? But if Jesus is raised from the tomb, if the tomb is empty, then literally everything else is on the table. If Jesus can do that, then all these other things can be true as well. So do your business with the resurrection. It's the foundation of all Christian belief. Now, others of us, we don't struggle to believe like, the truth claims of the Bible. We don't wrestle with God's miracles. Instead, we wrestle with God's promises. Right? The point where doubt and skepticism hit us, right? it's not in what the Bible says has happened. It's in what the Bible says about who God is, and in particular, who God promises to be for us. And we doubt those things because at times life just kicks us in the teeth, and we endure hardship and heartache, and it becomes hard for us to believe that God is there, that, that he sees us and knows us and cares about us. I mean, I'm not certain I'm describing somebody in the room at this moment. Right? You've walked in here with the weight of the world on your shoulders, and the cry of your heart is simply, God, do you even see me? Do you even care? Do you even know? Are you able to do anything anyway? And those are burdens that we must bring to the empty tomb also. The empty tomb is actually the proof to us that God does see and he does know and he does care about our deepest problems because the empty tomb is the proof that God has dealt with our sin. But in Romans 4, Paul writes this. He says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised, why? For our justification. He was raised for our justification. In other words, the resurrection is the proof that God accepted the payment that Jesus made for our sins on the cross. Jesus was raised to prove that the penalty of our sin has been satisfied. The judicial sentence that was against us on account of our sin, it was an infinite sentence. Not because we're infinite sinners, but because God is infinitely holy. But now that infinite sentence against us, it has been infinitely satisfied. And so, because after Jesus came walking out of the grave. The resurrection was God stamping, paid in full across all of history, so no one could miss it. Which means the resurrection is the promise. It's the proof of the fact that God does see and he does know about us and about our cares and about our sorrows and about our sufferings. The resurrection is the proof that he responds to these things because he's already responded to the biggest thing. He's already dealt with our biggest problem, our sin problem, the problem we were powerless to deal with ourselves. And so when we struggle to believe that God sees us and knows us and cares about us, we must look to the empty tomb. The resurrection It's the foundation of all Christian belief. It's also the foundation of all Christian obedience. That's the second thing the empty tomb changes for us. In other words, our response to the moral authority of Jesus, it is shaped by the resurrection. If Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, if he's nothing more than a good moral teacher and a good example of loving other people and being nice and kind, if that's all Jesus is, then you and I, we can live however we want. But if Jesus was merely a wise and kind person, even if he managed some miracles here and there, if all Jesus did was teach people how to live and show them how to live, then frankly, you and I, we can live our lives however we want to. You can have it your own way and be your own boss, and that's fine, if Jesus was just a good teacher. But if Jesus is a resurrected king, if he, as Aaron read to us this morning, defeated death and sin and Satan and then rose from the grave, if Jesus is a resurrected king, then we must deal with everything that he taught and everything that he commanded, and that we must submit every square inch of our lives to his authority. Did you know that in the years that followed Jesus' life and death, there were dozens of messianic movements that rose up in Israel under Roman authority. And in every one of those messianic movements, the Roman government came in and they just crushed it, right? They came in and they killed the leader of that messianic movement. And then you know what happened to all those movements? Nothing. People went home, they, they scattered, and the movement was forgotten to all but a few historians. Except for one. There was one messianic uprising where the leader was killed, and the movement didn't dwindle. It actually exploded Within 300 years, it had spread all over the Roman Empire today. it has spread all over the world. And that's the moment where the leader, he was crucified, he was killed. And even though his followers denied him and abandoned him in the hours leading up to his death, once they witnessed his resurrection, it changed everything for them. Those who ran from the crowds in fear before the cross became supermen on the other side of the resurrection. But those who, who trembled and denied Jesus and abandoned Jesus, they charged ahead with the message of Jesus after the empty tomb because of the empty tomb. Many of them met to their own deaths willingly and courageously because of the empty tomb. The church of Jesus is nothing but a good man, a good teacher, a good example. But who really cares what he said or what he did? But who cares about your sin? If you don't like what the Bible says about sexuality, who cares? If you don't like what the Bible says about money, who cares? If you don't like what the Bible says about loving your neighbor as yourself, who cares? But if Jesus is a risen, resurrected king, if all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, because he broke the power of death and conquered evil once and for all, how can you not submit your life to his will? It's as Paul said, if Christ is in the grave, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But if Christ is risen, let us bow before our risen king in submission to his perfect authority. The resurrection is the foundation of all Christian obedience. And lastly, the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of all Christian hope. Hope in this life is a really fickle thing. You can hope in money, and then the economy can collapse tomorrow. You can hope in your relationships, and then your marriage can implode. You can hope in your health, and then cancer can blindside you. Hope in the things of this world. It is always fickle and always fragile, and every worldly hope will fail you in the end, if not before the end because of the resurrection, if you are in Christ, you have an ultimate hope. A hope that is secure. A hope that will never perish or spoil or fade. If you are in Christ, the resurrection means that glory is always on the horizon of your life. But your body, that might fail you. Your relationships might fail you. Everything in this life will eventually perish or spoil or fade. Literally, your life will fall apart one day. But because of the resurrection, the life to come, it is real. And glory is on the horizon for you. A new day has dawned. And right now, right now, we see only the rays of sunlight peeking over the horizon. But there will be a day when we are blinded by the full-on sunlight of resurrection life. Hope is real because of the resurrection of Jesus. Last weekend, um, Kristen and I, we were in Texas, gathered with the friends and family of Billy Gilbert. Billy was not um, biologically a member of our family, but she and her husband, Jerry, when we were newly married, and then especially in the years when our kids were were really small, they just kind of adopted us. They um, became surrogate parents to us and surrogate grandparents to our children in the season of our lives where, just because of the way the Lord wrote our stories, like we needed them, and they were there. Now, they didn't do that for us because we were particularly special. This is just kind of how they roll, right? This is what they did. Um, they adopted so many people into their family in their older years because they really loved their church and they really loved the people in their church, and we were privileged to be among those people. We gathered last weekend um, with Billie's family and friends uh, to celebrate her life after she died on the 4th of February. And Billie's last years, they were, were marked by a struggle with Alzheimer's and all that Alzheimer's entails. And in fact, you can even like, see in the photos of her final years that like, she's there in body, but she's not really there. Where there's a spark in her eyes that's missing in those final years. Something was gone. She, she was gone. Where she was present in body, but in body only. In the end, this woman, who had been a force of nature for her entire life, like she was reduced to a mumbling, shuffling shadow of her former self. And then she died. But friends, there will be a day. There will be a day when the trumpet sounds and the risen, resurrected Christ returns in glory. A day when he calls his people by name and those who are in him rise from the grave. A day when the people of God are summoned to meet their risen, resurrected king and to worship him for eternity. Paul says that on that day, every affliction, every grief, every sorrow in this life, it will not be worth even comparing to the incomparable weight of glory that will be ours if we are in Christ Jesus. The resurrected Jesus, he is the object of our hope. His resurrection is the foundation of our hope. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you.